0: Welcome to Experts Only Podcast, sponsored by Clean Capital. You can learn more at cleancapital.com. I'm your host, John Powers. Each week, we explore the intersection of energy, innovation, and finance with leaders across the industry. Thank you so much for joining us. Hi, this is John Powers, your host for Experts Only. Thank you so much for joining us for today's podcast. You can get any of our episodes at cleancapital.com. Today I'm speaking with Anthony Leiserwitz, the director of Yale's program on climate change communications. Anthony's an expert on public opinion and public engagement with issues of climate change and the environment. His research looks at a series of factors including psychological, cultural, and political and how they influence the environmental beliefs and attitudes for things like policy port and behavior. He's also uh, been brought in by organizations like the World Gallup Poll, the World Economic Forum. United Nations Development Program to tap his insights. You know, we talked today a lot about the incredible m- moment that's happening here in climate change. Is you know we're at record numbers of Americans wanting to see action, but that we as an industry need to begin to drive that action in a more coherent way. So you're going to enjoy the conversation. Anthony's also the host of Climate Connections, a daily national radio program and podcast. Anthony, thanks so much for joining us at Experts Only Podcast.
1: Hi, John. Great to be with you. So, your
0: your personal experience is pretty amazing. It's taking you all over the country in, in both policy and, and academic roles. I want to talk a little bit about sort of what triggered your interest in the environment and, and climate change as a whole. What, what sort of got you started down that path?
1: Oh, interesting. Um, well, it was a bit of a windy path, to be honest. So, when I was an undergraduate, I actually studied international relations. Um, I studied Cold War politics, nuclear policy in particular. I thought I had a long career ahead of me, basically trying to keep the United States, Soviet Union, and China from blowing each other up. Right. And six uh, months before I graduated, the Berlin Wall came down, and oh. my international relations degree turned into a history degree overnight. So <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, so after that, I Believe it or not, I followed a friend out to Aspen, Colorado, uh, with the intention that I would be a ski bum, make some money, was going to have the big goal of traveling around the world. And instead, I ended up with a real job and uh, became one of the first staff members at a small institution called the Aspen Global Change Institute, where I spent the next four years learning about climate change, biodiversity extinctions, the ozone depletion problem, and many others with the world 's leading environmental scientists, and it was an incredible experience I mean, just uh, amazing people and uh, and it was basically like another college education with many of the world 's experts and so I really enjoyed that and and yet and it was a wake up call because it was really this is back in the early 90s as climate change you know the famous Jim Hansen testimony had happened just a couple of years right. earlier, and the scientific community was really uh, beginning to to make uh, substantial progress. But at the end of that, I actually felt myself feeling a little frustrated because I felt like, you know, and, and the natural scientists were fantastic and I loved being with them and they were, they were great. But personally, I felt like we were mostly talking about symptoms and not the underlying causes. Because if you look at climate change or biodiversity extinctions or any of these other global environmental challenges, the reasons why they exist is human beings you know, the natural scientists are incredibly important for helping us understand these challenges and why right. they happen. But ultimately, they're the result of human b- human perceptions, human decisions, human behavior. And so I felt like if I wanted to really address these kinds of issues like climate change, which even back in the early 90s, we knew was, was going to be existential, the answer was not going to be in the natural sciences. It was going to be in the social sciences and even the humanities. So, I basically started a long, winding process through a lot of different fields, really trying to answer a question that I'm still trying to answer, and that is, why do human beings perceive the world in the way that they do? Why do they make decisions about the world in the way that they do? And why do we behave the way we do? Because it's those where I think it's answering those questions and seeing how that relates to our underlying psychology, our culture, our politics. The economic systems we've built around ourselves, where the real answer lies to how we solve these problems,
0: that's challenging. I mean, the reality is that people don't see it. it's not black and white, right? People's perspectives uh, sway how they're viewing it. It's like, it like there's those folks that believe in climate change and those who don't. There is that breakdown, of course, but just people who are swayed by different messengers or different narratives, their religious, their religions or their their cultures. How do you? You know how do you begin to you know divide them up, and how do you you know look at uh, engaging them from a uh, maybe from a communications perspective, for instance, to help uh, educate them in action.
1: Yeah, I think, first of all, you have to start with the realization that, you know, human beings and human societies are at least as complicated, and I would argue way more complicated than the climate system itself. Um, I mean, we're talking about people here. And, you know, unlike, say, a carbon dioxide molecule, once you know how one carbon dioxide molecule traps heat, you pretty much know how the bazillions of them do, because they all operate the same way, right? Um, you, you can't say that about a human being. I mean, it's hard enough even understanding one human being, uh, whether it's yourself, your spouse, your kid, <laughs> or your right. family, uh, or all the other, you know, seven and a half billion of us. And that's because we change, right? We do change, and so now you get into these incredible areas of underlying psychology and, uh, and then the different cultures that we exist in and the different histories we come from and the different politics that we all live in. And, you know, these and many other factors all kind of come together in a Gordian knot of uh, this very, very complicated system that has produced these problems, but also are the ways that we're going to get out of these problems. So anyway, to try to bring some simplicity to that, we've. And I've ended up, through the course of my career, ending up in a field of of studying how Americans and other mass societies around the world respond to the issue of global climate change. So what do people understand and misunderstand about the causes, the consequences, the solutions to climate change? Uh, how do they perceive the risks? So the likelihood and severity of different types of impacts, whether those be wildfires or heat waves or extreme storms, sea level rise, and so on. Uh, What kinds of policies do people support or oppose? And then what kinds of behaviors are people engaged in around climate and clean energy? So that can range from how people use, waste, or conserve energy at home and on the road. Secondly is consumer behavior. So will people actually prefer the products and services that are better for the earth? And likewise, and interestingly, to what extent are they willing to reward and punish companies for their actions or inactions? And I'll say just as an aside that we find in general, at least in the United States, that Americans are much more willing to vote with their dollars on this issue than they are to necessarily vote at the ballot box. And that's interesting because those signals to the private sector can turn out to often have political consequences too. A third major area is social behavior. So how do we talk about this issue or more often don't talk about it and why? But also the role of social norms, these kind of unwritten cultural rules that guide much of our daily lives. And I'll just use a quick example. I mean, when I grew up anyway, uh, smoking was everywhere. It was in movies, it was in film, it was glorified, it was in bars and restaurants. If I flew across country, I'd be strapped in a seat in a metal tube next to about 30 other people that were puffing away. You could not escape it. You know, today, if you and I were sitting in a crowd of people and I pulled out a cigarette and lit it, People would recoil in horror. That's how much that unwritten cultural rule, that norm, has shifted in our society. And it turns out those norms play a really important role around these issues, too. And then the last uh, area of behavior that we look at is political. What leads some people to actually get engaged with the system and roll up their sleeves and say, you know, I'm not going to stand on the sidelines and watch the world burn. I want to get involved and do what I can to, to change the larger system. And so those are the kinds of things we get to study, Uh, many, many studies here in the United States, uh, increasingly also at state and local levels. But we've also done a lot of this work internationally as well. So uh, we've done first two ever studies in China, a study in India, and then we partnered with the Gallup World Poll for a few years, where we looked at this in about 120, 130 countries around the world. So anyway, it's been a fascinating journey, and it really has helped to both see the complexity of human responses out there, but also some commonalities as well. Um, Some of the the consistent things that seem to show up across many different people and cultures.
0: Interesting. So I I want to get into that a little more here in a second, but, you know, talk for for the audience who aren't familiar with Yale's project on climate change communications. You know, as you sort of left Aspen and, and got into the space, what led you, down the road to end up at at Yale and and, and launching this, and and talk for a little little bit about what the project does.
1: Sure, so so I ended up deciding and took a few years to figure out where I was gonna go to graduate school and ended up at the University of Oregon, go Ducks. And uh, it was just the perfect place to be. I got a degree in environmental science studies and policy. It was an interdisciplinary PhD, uh, where I was trained as a human geographer, then did a bunch of uh, psychology outside of that. And I had the great fortune to meet and befriend, and have as a mentor, and then ultimately as a colleague, one of the world's great psychologists, uh, a guy named uh, Paul Slovic, uh, who really has helped create the field of judgment and decision making, and what is now known as behavioral economics, along with people like you might have heard of, of Daniel Kahneman and uh, and Amos uh, Tversky. Those three guys really did kind of lay the foundations of bringing these Psychological uh, findings into the realm of decision making, including financial decision making among, as well as environmental decision making. So I was able to study with with Paul and learn a lot about how right. human beings perceive and respond to risk. Uh, but my interest continued to be climate change, and so I was able to apply a lot of those ideas and and new ones to the study of this, and ultimately was uh, made an offer I couldn't refuse by the dean of the Yale School of Forestry and Environmental Studies at the time, Gus Speth, um, and uh, came to Yale and have been very happy here for the past 11, 12 years. That's amazing.
0: So, you know, as as we were talking offline, you know, this is something that's been near and dear to my heart. I got into clean energy and, and climate change after spending time in Iraq and coming home and and launching a program called Operation Free to get more veterans involved in clean energy. And one of the really uh, enlightening experiences for me was when we hosted a a racer named Milani Moetzer, who actually just retired this week Mm -hmm. out at the Kansas Speedway. And we took a platoon full of veterans into Kansas and had uh, 10,000 people stop by our tent to learn about climate change. Because we were uh-huh. hearing from a messenger that they trusted, which were, uh, you know, folks, uh, uh, military veterans, right? And for me, it was really enlightening to see how that messenger could could affect the current debate that was happening. And now mind you, this is this is about ten years ago. It was also about ten years ago when you launched your study with George Mason on on the global warming six Americas, and you dug into the six different categories, which I want to talk about more in a second. But you know, the alarm, the concerned, the cautious, the disengaged, the doubtful, and dismissive. Tell us more about those sort of different types and, you know, what, what's usually sort of factoring into, we talked a little bit about this earlier, about factoring into what makes those folks fall into those different categories.
1: Sure. So early in our work, we realized, of course, that Americans don't have a single viewpoint on climate change or frankly, any other important yeah. issue. <laughs> um, And so then you'll hear a lot of people out there say, well, then there are believers and there are deniers. And that's unfortunately way too simplistic and does real violence, in fact, to the reality, which is that there are a lot of different perspectives on this. And in the course of our work about starting uh, over a decade ago, we did analysis and basically realized that at least one way to look at this is to, is that we found what we call global warming, six Americas, six very distinct audiences that are each coming at this issue from a very different starting point. And one of the first cardinal rules of effective communication, as well as education, is know your audience. Right? Who are they? Where are they? Who do they trust? What are their underlying values? Uh, what do they already know or think they know? Um, so on and so forth. Because only then can you try to meet them where they are, not where you are. And so often, unfortunately, in this space and many others, people start from where they are and they themselves are and say, let me tell you everything I know and why I think this is so important without taking the time to think about, well, where is their audience? And I mean, that can be as simple as, you know, a person in climate change or clean energy spewing a bunch of jargon at people who are like, what are you talking about? Right? right, (laughs) Because they just because you're just you're you're assuming that they have all this background knowledge and frankly interest that they probably don't. So anyway, it's just a, a case in point of how important it is that you know who your audience is. So the alarmed are, uh, in fact, we're uh, just releasing these results now. Are 29% of uh, the country? They are firmly convinced it's happening. It's human caused. Uh, it's urgent. They strongly support uh, action on climate change. But they often don't know what to do. Right. Uh, that's the primary question in their head is, you know what can I do? Uh, what can we do collectively? And they're really hungry to know those solutions. We've actually done a better job communicating the scale and scope and seriousness of the problem than we have what can be done about it.
0: Yeah, I, um, I get that question all the time from folks.
1: Like yeah, what? I bet. Um, the next group is called The Concern. That's 30% of the country. And these people also think it's happening. It's human-caused. It's serious. But they tend to think of it as distant, uh, that the impacts are distant in time. We won't feel them for a generation or more. And distant in space. This is a problem really for polar bears or maybe right. some developing countries, but not the United States, not my state, not my community, not my family, my friends, or me, or any of the people in places I care about. And as a result, that means it's kind of psychologically distant. It just becomes one of a thousand other issues that's out there. And maybe I kind of wish somebody would do something about it, but I don't see why it's that important. I don't see why it's a priority. I don't see why it's urgent. Right. The third group is what we call the cautious, about 17%. And they're still on the fence. Is it real? Is it not? Is it human? Is it natural? Is it serious? Or is it kind of overblown? They're paying attention, but basically are kind of confused. Then a small group, but important, about 5% that we call the disengaged. And these are people who basically say, you know, I think I once heard that word global warming, but right. I don't know anything about this issue. I, I mean, I really don't know anything about it. So it's not ideology or politics or anything that's in the way. It's just, they just really lack basic awareness. Right. Uh, then comes a group we call the doubtful, 9%. Uh, these are people who say, you know, I don't think this is real. It's actually happening. But if it is, it's natural. It's nothing humans have anything to do with, nothing we can do anything about. So I don't see it as much of a risk, and I don't think about it all that much. And then last but not least is a group we call the dismissive. And they, too, are only 9%, but they are firmly convinced it is not happening, it is not human caused, it is not a serious problem, and most of whom just quite literally tell us that they're conspiracy theorists. They say it's a hoax. It's scientists making up data. It's a UN plot to take away American sovereignty. It's a get-rich scheme by Al Gore and his friends and many other such narratives. Okay, now important to note is that group is only 9%. Exactly. It's yeah. only 9%, but there are really loud 9%. There are really vocal 9%. There are 9% that has tended to dominate uh, the public square. And they've made themselves look to policymakers to reporters to many of us in society as if half or more of the country is in this is in this uh, category but they're not they're just loud
0: yeah i mean i feel like that nine percent right has been empowered i mean if you look going back to 10 years ago you had and i'd be interested to know how those numbers have adjusted right over the 10 years and especially in the recent i think surge of interest but you know you al gore came out with this um the Inconvenient Truth, the Oscar-winning documentary, and really people began to, to gain the, the understanding that this was an urgent threat. But of course, the backlash to that was pretty severe. And you had stakeholders mm-hmm. like energy companies uh, and oil companies take that 9%, which may have been larger than, I'm not sure, but you know, actually fund them <laughs> to make those voices even louder, right?
1: Without question. So yes, this is where this, inter- this issue, unfortunately, in many ways, gets bound up in our politics. Right. And of course, you cannot evade our uh, economic system, right? There are enormous political and economic forces with big stakes in this, right? I mean, so you mentioned the fossil fuel industry. Before that, it was the fossil industry as well as the manufacturing industry. You know, these, and the fossil fuel industry to this day is the most profitable industry on the planet. They are Perfectly happy with the status quo. Thank you very much. Right, and they have spent enormous sums to basically keep us locked into the status quo for as long as possible, including uh, you know, and there have been many studies that have shown this. Essentially, adopting the exact same policy, the same strategy, communication strategy that was developed by the tobacco industry, which was, and this is in the tobacco documents, doubt is our product. They knew they didn't have to convince Americans that smoking was good for you. They just needed to convince Americans that the science was still unsettled. It was still uncertain whether smoking was good or bad for you, even though the Surgeon General declared smoking was bad back in the 1950s. And because they kept that, that element of doubt alive in the American public, especially by having paid scientists going out right. there and saying that the science was still uncertain, the industry was able to rake billions of dollars, uh, additional dollars, into their, into their bank accounts. It worked. Um, that exact same strategy, including some of the exact same scientists, uh, have been deployed in the climate change uh, war. So, yes, there have been strong, strong interests there. And then there's the politics. But let me actually, before, you know, we all know that, you know, the politics are pretty strong in this for this issue. Democrats overwhelmingly accept climate change as a real and serious problem. Republicans remain much more skeptical, though there are differences among Republicans, too. But I'll just take you back to where we were in 2008, when basically uh, both parties had adopted climate change as a serious problem. Because in 2008, the nominee for president of the United States by the Republican Party was Senator John McCain, who for years had been one of the primary champions of climate action in Congress. And in fact, climate change was in the Republican National Party platform saying, yes, this is real. Yes, this is human cause. Yes, this is a serious problem. And we want to solve it with our conservative principles. You only have to go back 10 years. And yeah. you saw that.
0: I mean, he even co-sponsored but, legislation with Senator Kerry. That would have been the the balance of the House, uh, House legislation that actually passed.
1: That's right. That's right. Um, now, of course, all is history because obviously right, he lost right. that election and Obama uh, Uh, took power. And the reaction to that, and especially what we've shown in our research, the rise of the Tea Party in particular, and that rightward lurch of the Republican Party from 2008 saying climate change was real human cause and a serious problem to just a year and a half later, basically going out to the very last end of the last twig and the last longest branch where the talking point became climate change is a hoax. Okay, That's an amazing shift uh, for one of our two political parties, yeah um where they remain stuck for uh, a good part of a decade, though that has changed pretty significantly in just the past few years, where now uh, Republican views and concerns about climate change are at all time highs, even though President Trump and Republicans are still in control of the Senate
0: yeah, so let's talk about that for a second. I feel like you know. Obviously, uh, on this show, and I imagine uh, for most folks you talk to, the, the, the science is settled, but you know, I, I've been arguing that, that we're sort of at a, reach, um, a very recent um, sort of cultural moment around climate change. You know In your recent New York Times editorial, you highlighted you know, your recent survey that a record number of Americans understand climate change is real. The just beginning of the year, Chuck Todd courageously declined having climate deniers on "Meet the Press" and talked about it from an action perspective. Nancy Pelosi, the new Speaker of the House, opened up the new House session calling climate change an existential threat of our time, which I agree with. And of course, Budweiser came out in the Super Bowl this year and had renewable energy in their ads. People are beginning to move. You've got evangelicals and, and the Christian Coalition doing amazing work, educating folks on it. The momentum is here. Uh, how do we keep that momentum moving forward? And you know, how, do, how, do you, how would you empower a listener? To this show, who maybe in the in the industry, right, and knows that we have record number of corporations buying renewable energy. You know, y- there's ways to to vote with your dollars, and that that are new uh, that you know we never even imagined ten years ago uh, with apps and with with other tools. How do you empower them to help us continue to build the momentum so that we can take that group that's alarmed and concerned and grow it even more? Yeah. exactly.
1: So uh, a lot of different things here. So first of all, that group that I've called the alarmed, that's 29% of the American public. That's about 73 million Americans. That's a group that we would call in political science terms the issue public, the people who are deeply invested in and concerned about a particular issue. And you know what issue publics are. Think of the pro or anti-immigration movement or the pro-choice or anti-abortion movement or the pro or anti-gun control movement. Think the NRA, okay? The NRA, now that is a powerful, well-organized issue public of about 4 million members in a society of 252 million adults. Four million of them are members of the NRA. And yet they clearly punch way above their numbers in terms of their political influence, okay? I would suggest that the climate community has yet to coalesce into a powerful political force. And that is one of the big missing ingredients. not the only thing. There's always got to be, you know, the economics got to get right. And, you know, there's still an importance of policy development and economic analysis and lobbying and campaign donations. And yeah, there are a lot of other things. But what's been missing in this community is the voice of people demanding that their elected representatives take action on this issue. Right now, there's not yet been enough either political uh, opportunity or pain for not being a leader on climate change. So I think that's shifting. So one is that there's this enormous segment of the population, again, 73 million people, um, who are very, very concerned about this issue right now. They have yet, however, to be organized into a powerful movement. And I would say to your industry, the clean industry, uh, clean energy industry, that is doubly true, right? Okay? The clean energy industry is the, been the fastest growing industry in America now for several years. You're beginning to see a number of big players, including both the generators of energy and the buyers of that energy, like you just mentioned, Budweiser, but we could go on with Google and Apple and many, many others. Yeah. Um, well, at what point does that industry finally begin to create and organize itself into a counterweight to the American Petroleum Institute? Yeah, Because they have a lot of political power. But the clean energy industry is, and you know this better than I do, but at least what I've been told, is still too busy clawing each other for market share to actually organize together to, to reshape the political climate of climate change. So it's not just about citizens getting organized and demanding action from their leaders. I think it's also, in, and at least as much, about the business community getting organized and demanding action and demanding that the rules be uh, recalibrated to support and accelerate and amplify the transition to a clean energy future.
0: So I feel like there was, mo- there was movement around this with you know the post-Paris, we're still in effort by Series. But I completely agree with you that there's not enough initiative from an industry to get, that's been on its heels, for the most part, trying to defend its position into being the aggressor and saying, you know, solar and wind are the fastest growing uh, electricity generation types on, on, on the, the grid today. The largest, you know, eight states in this country have solar jobs as the number one growing job in that state. And we're, we're not telling that message enough. And and I think that as an industry, we need to take it upon ourselves to do things like we do at Clean Capitals. We actually track our projects by what, con- what congressional district they're in. So we can uh-huh. send letters to those members and let them know that we're in their seat. Not not lobbying them, per se, but just let them know that we're there, right? We, that we, we are, That's we right. are a, a, a stakeholder for them to worry about.
1: Oh, and not just a stakeholder. You, are, you have an incredible story to tell of, first of all, the fastest growing set of job creation in the country, period, at a time when people are still very hungry to find those right. good quality, high paying jobs. And that it's also, of course, the, we're, in the, we're just in the beginnings of what will be probably the biggest uh, economic transition in world history. I mean as I understand it and again this is your field better than mine but you know this is this transition to a clean energy future is bigger than the computer revolution it's bigger than the cell phone revolution and so on I mean this is involving trillions of dollars that somebody is going to own and somebody is going to make and you know that's really the question is I mean you know that as fast as solar and wind and other uh, clean energies are growing, there's still a tiny proportion of the mix, with a few exceptions in like Costa Rica or, say, you know, Iowa, as an example. It's still a tiny proportion of the overall mix. And you know, the, the growth potential is absolutely staggeringly huge. And meanwhile, we're competing against other countries that fully understand that. Right. I mean, I think that the Chinese had recognized this a long time ago and said, we're going to try to own as much of that market share as we possibly can. So, you know, at what point does the clean energy industry get organized, exert its own political power to help tell an incredibly Positive and opportunistic story that isn't just simply about protecting us from the harms and coming ravages of climate change, which are, right. should be incentive enough, but it also is about building the clean energy future that I think most human beings want to live in.
0: So, so I'm going to just return it to the cultural piece for a second. And sort of my final question we're obviously living in a time where we've got a president in the White House that's driving. Uh, a lot of debate through social media and obviously throws out, you know, he, he's targeting the, those 9% of the deniers and giving them a bigger voice than they should have. So how do, you know, what tools are available for the listeners to help counter to that debate? You know, for instance, I know the communication or climate change communication uh, program has some great research, like what's out there to help them reach out and have a dialogue with folks to, to help, help move them in the direction that we need to move them.
1: Well, again, I just got to come back to where's your where's your trade association? Yeah. Where is the investment in developing that common voice and that common political strategy to affect the rules by which this game is being played? That's it. I mean, I can't tell you that. I will say that I think this is a great opportunity, in fact, because for as much as the president goes off. You know, saying climate change isn't real, or attacking the clean energy industry, or trying to bring back, you know, anachronistic uh, uh, sources of of uh, fossil energy. I mean, we know that the tide is not with him, right? I right. mean, it's just those are not sustainable positions. And I think many many people in Congress already understand that quite quite clearly. They are on the wrong side of history on this. So the question is really not if, it's how fast. Right. And I think as an industry. Getting organized and developing a powerful common voice is going to dramatically increase the speed at which that transition happens. If you don't do it and you continue to fight amongst yourselves, the the status quo is chuckling all the way to the bank.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So I'm going to end with reflecting on your trip out to Aspen after you graduated college to, to go become a ski bum. And if you could go catch yourself, uh, as you're pulling into Aspen and sit down and have coffee or, or grab a beer, what would you, what a piece of advice would you give to yourself?
1: (laughs) Oh my. Um, other than enjoy the ride, right? (laughs) Yeah. I mean, that is basically what I would say, frankly, because, you know, my younger self was, didn't know what was about to happen. Didn't know what I was going to get exposed to. Didn't know how, opportunities would come my way. And I think as I've gotten older, I've gotten more and more fascinated by serendipity. You know, especially in today's world, I think the world is so complicated. There are so many cross-cutting currents of influence and change happening all around us that, you know, you can't build a long-term plan that, you know, I'm going to get this degree I'm going to go get a job at this company I'm going to spend the next 40 years at that company I'm going to retire with a gold watch and then go play golf the rest of my life it's just that's not the way the world works anymore right and i think a lot of it is just like you've got to you've got to not try to plan everything out and just think that you're going to have one line through this you've got to be open to opportunity and able to be flexible and nimble and move when opportunity arises. And you've got to just hold that, mm-hmm. that philosophy all the way through. And I think it doesn't matter whether you're an individual trying to make it through the world or a giant corporation. It's that agility that is going to make or break you.
0: Yeah. Anthony, thank you so much. Listen, I really, first of all, appreciate the conversation, the data you're putting into the the dialogue is so important, and I love the research. And obviously, we'd love to to have you back, and and you know, find ways that we can help engage not just our industry, but the community as a whole. You know, that's what one of the things we're trying to do here—not just at Clean Capital, but at Experts Only. So, you know, honored to have you on, and and thank you so much for the work that you're putting into the community.
1: Thanks, John. It was great to be with you, and Godspeed to everybody. Thank you,
0: Anthony, for joining us today. Uh, what an interesting conversation—the fact that. NRA is only four million people, and there's 73 million folks who are alarmed by clean energy. We need to work as an industry to grab that attention and drive change uh, in this climate moment. So, thank you for Anthony for joining us. You can learn more about Yale's program uh, at their website, and I'd like to thank our producers Emily O'Connor and our intern uh, Darnell Lubin for their hard work. You can get more episodes at CleanCapital.com, and I look forward to continuing the conversation. Thanks for listening in today's conversation. Find more episodes on cleancapital.com, iTunes, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you like what you hear, be sure to subscribe and leave us a five-star review. We look forward to continuing our conversation on energy,
1: innovation, and finance with you.